How can we catalog and distill healthcare providers' experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic? And what can such data tell us as we continue to unpack the impact of this novel coronavirus currently shaking up and reshaping our world? Let's talk all about the crucial work of Project COPE right here on this special bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm committed to regularly publishing episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide, and you can find the show notes for this episode at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID dash 19 dash 15 all information in these COVID-19 episodes are the most up-to-date information we can access as well as the personal opinions and reactions from myself and my guests please note the situation is changing rapidly by the moment and anything we might discuss could have changed by the time we publish please note that nothing shared in the course of these episodes is intended for diagnosis or treatment please consult your healthcare provider the CDC the WHO your local Department of Health and any other evidence-based resources that you trust. And if you hear or read something that I have shared online that you feel is erroneous regarding the pandemic or COVID-19, shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com so I can be disabused of any wrong opinion and I can post a public correction. And today we are joined by two illustrious members of Project COPE coming to us from the Southeast United States, Anne Blair Kennedy and Smith Hebner Sullivan. Smitty and Anne Blair, thanks for being here. And let's go right to it. So Anne Blair, what is Project COPE and why is the work you're doing so important to catalog healthcare providers' experience during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, Project COPE is a longitudinal study, mixed methods, and we're really looking at it as an ethnography as well. So it's this longitudinal work that we're asking all types of healthcare providers to let us know how they're doing, because we're interested in a lot of different things. What we know from past scientific research is that when we find out about how healthcare providers are doing, it's usually after the fact of whatever type of disaster that might be, whether that's a hurricane or whether it's terrorism or whether it's another epidemic like this. We rarely get information from these healthcare providers during and as they're experiencing it. And so that's what we're really looking to do here is find out how healthcare providers are coping throughout their work or not work. I see. And you use two terms I want to make sure we clarify right away because we might come back to them. One is mixed methods. So some people listening may not be as familiar with research as you are and Smitty is and I am tangentially. So what does mixed methods mean? That's where we're looking at bringing in both quantitative and qualitative. So we want numbers so that we can use math to figure out exactly how big or how if something is actually significant and if it's clinically significant. But that isn't really always enough. We also need the stories. 
We need the stories from the healthcare providers because they can help explain the numbers. Because the numbers, while they're great, they don't always give us the why or the how. They give us the how much. And I love the stories. So that's why, that's basically what makes Method this. And Smitty can always correct me too. I see. <laughs> you got it. Right. You got it. And, <laughs> and Smitty handles all the numbers, right? Well, we actually do it both together. We have fun. We do a you lot of qualitative work together. We've had a lot of fun <laughs> doing our qualitative research together. That's good. And, and Smitty, um, Anne Blair used another term that I'll throw to you, and that's ethnography. What does it mean to do ethnographical research? Yeah, so um, ethnography is just one of those fancy words that we use um, in science. And what it really means is that the people that are conducting the research are experiencing the things that they're researching. Um, You know, some of the early ethnographies were people that would go and live with other communities and write about those communities as they were living in them. What we recognize is that we are researching, we're asking people questions about their experience as healthcare providers during a pandemic, and we're healthcare providers during a pandemic. And one of the really important things with qualitative research, but even more so with mixed methods research, is to think very carefully about how your own perceptions can influence the work you're doing and the analysis that you're doing. And ethnographic approaches, the methodology is one that allows you, rather than trying to completely separate yourself from your own experience as you analyze the data that's coming in, you acknowledge the the experience you're having. Um, All of us are are journaling, making notes about how we are feeling about what's happening around us. So that as we're interpreting data, we know we have this uh, documentation of the mindset we were in and the things that were occupying our thoughts so that we can understand if there's something about the way, you know, if I've had a particularly bad day with a really busy day in the ICU or the ER, I know that I might be more prone to see negativity in in uh, one of the video blogs from one of our participants. So it's a it's big fancy word, just that basically means that people who are doing the research are also paying attention and documenting their own experience as part of it. I see. And Smitty, you're a master's prepared nurse, correct? And Anne Blair, you are a licensed massage therapist and also a clinical assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville, in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. So, Smitty, from from your point of view, you're bringing the nursing part here. What is most, I guess we could use the word exciting or, or inspiring aspects of collecting information from healthcare providers during the pandemic and what you think might come of having this research in our pockets to be able to really look at deeply what our experiences are as individuals and a collective? That is a really good question. Um, My particular experience, I'm specialized in emergency nursing. Um, And so I am used to a clinical environment that is rapidly changing, that is unpredictable, um, where the team, there's no set schedule. There's no planning in the ED. Um, you know, unlike um, in some types of inpatient units where the skill is really having that plan across the day, the ED is constantly in chaos. And rather than, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about how that impacts us. We don't spend a lot of time, um, you know, when we have a bad day, we don't think about what it is that we're feeling and how that might be affecting how we're working. And so 
I don't under, I've always been skeptical of the ability to actually capture that experience afterwards. But because we are collecting moment, collecting data as individuals are experiencing this pandemic, as they're going through staffing shortages, as they're facing supply shortages, um, in situations where they don't have what they need to take care of their patients or to protect themselves, we're getting the information when it's fresh. We're getting their perspective when it's fresh, and rather than someone looking back and maybe not always giving the, the best representation of what their actual experience was. I see. That's that's interesting. And your master's is in applied health research and evaluation from Clemson University, and you're a doctoral student in that same program now. So is this research you're doing with Ann Blair and anyone else on your team, is, is this related to your dissertation? So that's an excellent question. Ann Blair's <laughs> giggling. Ann Blair has been a... a friend, a peer, and a mentor um, in a lot of different aspects of my life. We, we overlap in several different domains. And actually, my, my PhD advisor is one of our co-investigators. But the, the joke is that Ambler and I are like crows. We see these shiny research ideas, and we grab them, and we just have this massive collection. I'm not sure what my dissertation is going to be at this point. Um, this is certainly related to my life's work. Um, I'm very interested in the way hospitals function and the way that the people inside them cope with how well or how poorly they function. I think this will certainly be tied to my dissertation, whether it's an actual chapter in and of itself is yet to be seen. Uh, I'm actually taking my comprehensive exams next week. Um, And so I'll have to start facing those questions seriously. Thank you. Right. I have to start really seriously facing those questions over the coming months, uh, but there certainly is no shortage of, of things to write about. Um, at, really, it's, this project is more about Ambler and I saw a need, saw we had the capacity to to assess the need and get some meaningful information uh, out, and we enjoyed collaborating and work so well together. We thought, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? That's that's really it is exciting, and and Blair. You're an assistant clinical professor of medicine. You're also a licensed massage therapist. And I think you mentioned offline, you also do lymphatic drainage massage, right? Yes. So I've been a licensed massage therapist since 1999 here in South Carolina. I'm Mm -hmm. also board certified. And as part of my continuing education, I have taken hundreds of hours of classes. And one of them is the the Vodder. I went through the Vodder School of North America and got their 180 hour certification as well. I and see. it was my work in massage therapy that led me back to get a doctorate. I see. And in public health, which led me to the medical school. Right. That's that's great. So you're you have a foot in in some very different worlds, the complementary medical world and then the the medical education world and also public health. You just mentioned that. And and I know you did a um, postdoctoral fellowship in human performance lab at the USC School of Medicine Greenville back in 2017. So you're bringing a lot of different things to the table, just like Smitty does. Now, when we hear the word healthcare provider and then the word COVID-19, most of us probably automatically think doctor, surgeon, nurse, right? That's where we go. And I think that's sort of a normal culturally oriented thing, right? And when we think about the frontline heroes of COVID-19, we think nurse, doctor, 
first responder. And then I always want to throw in, you know, the environmental services workers who clean the patient rooms who are putting their lives at risk, the grocery store clerks, the mail carriers. We could go on and on with everyone who actually is frontline. And that's a lot of people, soon to be teachers too. Though Some teachers are actually teaching in person already, and we'll see how that pans out as the school year continues to unfold. I, I'm a little pessimistic about that. That's another conversation. Now, as a complementary medical provider, licensed massage therapist, how did you and Smitty make this decision to say, hey, if we want to survey medical, quote unquote, providers who are providing care in the time of COVID-19 and the pandemic, why don't we bring in like acupuncturists and massage therapists and all these other people? Did that come up right away? Was it, was it a no-brainer that you were going to do that? Do you want to take it or do you want me to start? Because I know this will just be a conversation between the two of us here and you jump in. Go for it. <laughs> you two can have a conversation and I'll it. just watch. So you start. I think of it all about the context and the story of how this all happened. So part of this comes from, I still volunteer for the massage therapy. I still am part of the massage therapy world. I am a member of um, the American Massage Therapy Association, and I'm the chair of governance for that professional association. I'm also the executive editor for the um, International Journal of Therapeutic Massage and Bodywork, which is an open source, peer-reviewed, free-to-publish-in um, scientific journal. I'm also um, executive editor and editor-in-chief. So I'm still very much in the massage therapy world, but I'm also a medical school professor. And we had the AMTA had a board meeting in March, right at the beginning. And that's when things were starting to get really kind of explosive over here. And I'd been in Tennessee and I'm coming back from Tennessee and I'm starting to look on social media and I see all my colleagues in the massage therapy world getting very scared and practices shutting down. And then I see my students getting pulled from the clinical environment and them not knowing, well, I graduate on time, what's gonna happen? So having communication with them. And then Smitty calls me up and he's like, we gotta do something. We have to look at this. And they're already doing something in the emergency department. I wonder if we can add to it. Now I'm going to hand it over to you. It's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there was some of our, our, our colleagues. We have a, there's a, a group of us. Many of, of them are on our co-investors on Project Hope that have been looking at uh, constructs around burnout and meaningful use, meaningful work. Um, looking at constructs around burnout and meaningful work. We um, recently completed a, a study that we're working on publishing out looking particularly at medical students and medical faculty and around perceptions around teaching. Um, but part of this group was work, had this project where they were looking specifically for signs of burnout in the ED. They were surveying physicians. Um, there was interest in expanding. And I, you know, I had this idea around, you know, let's just get this group together, but, but you know, let's journal or let's bring a group of ER nurses together, get everyone to, you know, just document this experience because all of our lives are being disrupted. I was, I mean, I was away from the bedside, but I was managing uh, HIV and hepatitis C screening program. And then in April, I ended up becoming the director of our registry, our COVID registry for our hospital system. Uh, everyone's lives are being disrupted, whether we are at the bedside or not. And 
I was seeing a lot of the same things that Ambler was seeing. I would on my Facebook for my friends, um, the all the group chats that I'm still in from you know my friends in intensive care, emergency room. There's this just dread about all of the things that we don't know, all of the things that we can't control, and all the ways that that's going to impact us and our loved ones. And I I just I couldn't. I, it was it's too important of a story not to capture. And we we really I I was thinking pretty locally. I, I was thinking, you know, let's let's get RED, let's let's document this, come together and come up with something where we can describe this. Uh, after at, when this is all over, we can come back and look at our notes. And um as as I called Ann Blair, um weren't you were you still at the airport when I called you? Were you driving? We were driving back because we drove there this time. So it was just in Tennessee. I think it was the day after I got back that we had the conversation. So this was the beginning of March. Maybe that's what it was. You know, so I, I'm telling her what I'm thinking. And she starts saying, starts talking about all the things she's seeing on, on social media as well. And we do, we did what we have done with many of our projects. And we spooled each other up and we ended up with this pretty impressive plan. And we actually, went from that conversation to submitting an IRB protocol in how long was it? I think we had everything submitted in 10 days and we launched the study within another four. And this is also bringing in the whole team. We have co-investigators in Indiana, in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. in three different institutions in South Carolina. Yeah, it was a really quick pulling a whole team together, getting all of us together, getting the measurement that we wanted and getting it through IRB. And we launched our first survey April 16th, I think is what it was. So that's pretty early in the pandemic, actually. April, you know, the first week of April is when a lot of people were even waking up that anything was happening, to the best of my recollection. And getting mm-hmm. through the IRB, the internal review board, is uh, can be a very painstaking, sometimes longer-term uh, experience than... Sounds like you all got it through pretty quickly. Do you think, Ann Blair, do you think partially was the IRB more amenable because this was such a timely thing that just had to get done? Or are you two just so stellar that they're like rubber stamp, you're, you're all off and running? Well, we went through, there were so many IRBs that we could have used because of all the different institutions, but we went through the University of South Carolina. And because we were simply doing these surveys, as well as asking, not requiring people to include a video journal that they could upload. Um, They saw it as, it's called an exempt status. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't have to go through a huge amount because we're not going in and we're taking samples from any individual. So it was a very quick process. My university is really very good about those things. And also because it was COVID related, I think it did get it pushed through a little bit quicker. Um, so that was helpful. And then we also determined in this whole process that we didn't want to just focus on North America or even the United States. We decided let's go international because why not? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah. Why not? It it was that we, we were, as we were planning to recruit on social media, we realized there really wasn't a way to prevent someone outside of the United States from responding. And rather than trying to build in other questions, we just decided, well, why not? Let's lean into this and, and see if we get 
extra data. And we've got this incredible response. We have eight countries represented, it's over 600 respondents from 20 different medical professions, um, just this incredibly diverse sample. And back to one of Ampler's earliest points, we have a, a good portion of our participants are massage therapists. And this is a group that hasn't been studied before. But what we have is some information that is it's called validated uh, survey instruments. So there's survey questions that have been studied and we know they ask what we think they're asking. And we have some other piece of information where we're gathering information with questions that we came up with. But we're doing it on this totally new group that we don't have any data on. But at the same time, we also have people that we know we have data on them. You know, so we, we know what a nurse's experience you know, quote unquote looks like as they recover from a pandemic. So we have some theory about what it, it's like to live through and work through that disaster. And that lets us have this really incredible triangulation to have really good, get a much deeper understanding of what's happening for massage therapists than we would have been able to had we only surveyed them or certainly if we hadn't included them at all. Wow. Yeah. That no one would even think naturally about a massage therapist during a pandemic. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, we think about nurses and doctors. So let's rewind a second. What are the eight countries where you have respondents so far? Let's see. Well, we know we have, as, as he's pulling it up, hopefully I'll see what I can get. I know we have Australia and New Zealand and Italy and England, Canada, United States, Mexico and Brazil. I believe you have Mexico. I think that got me eight. It's not on the list. Brazil's not on the list that I have from Smitty, but on my list, I have US, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, UK, Italy, Australia, New Zealand. So you have South America, you have all of North America, and the tip of of Europe, and then we have Australia, New Zealand, Oceania. So mm-hmm. that's that's a pretty good swath. Are you looking to make more of a bridge into Europe? Because it would be very interesting to hear what's happening in Western, Central and Eastern Europe, and then Asia as well, because we know that this all began in China, then South Korea, North Korea, and it's everywhere now, right? And Africa would also be very interesting to get information from there. So are you trying, Anne Blair, are you trying to make inroads into other, onto other continents and more countries? We are continuing to recruit. And we do have the limitation of only offering this in English. Mm-hmm. And we do know that that is a limitation. But it's something sure. that we just don't have the co-investigators or the staff to help with that portion to translate and interpret this information into other languages. So that is part of it. So we don't have any necessary recruiting strategy to specifically target different other countries. We're relying a lot on the social network from all of our, um, that we've been able to reach through, through all the different threads of our co-investigators and um, because amazingly enough, we have some international touch points, which is why you see a little bit more in Australia and New Zealand and a little bit more in England, because our amazing project coordinator is actually British. <laughs> That's great. So that Chloe is amazing. So she's able to reach over there a little bit. 
Yeah. So networks, that's a good use of resources right. where you don't have the staff to be able to, to do this and translate everything. Now, Smitty, in that previous response that I wanted to rewind on, now I'm going to fast forward to the second part of that response that's sticking out for me is that this whole idea about massage therapists. And before we hit record, we were talking about this idea that in the course of a pandemic or an emergency or something like this, what is one of the self-care modalities we recommend to healthcare providers who are stressed out? Massage. Massage and body work, right? And Mm -hmm. have we ever actually asked those body workers, those massage therapists, what their experience is working under these types of conditions? Apparently not, right? No, there's, there's no data on it. There's no data on it. So this is very groundbreaking. And I have friends right here in Santa Fe who are who started seeing clients again after being shut down by the governor for a number of months who they couldn't practice. So they've opened up their practices again, either working privately in chiropractic offices or shared offices. And they're all looking at themselves and each other going, now what do we do? Let's look at the CDC guidelines and see what, what are we supposed to do now? How do we practice massage safely? So they're having their own experiences and they're on the front line because they're being exposed to all sorts of people during the course of a pandemic. So it sounds like the preponderance of respondents so far are massage therapists, Sam Blair. We have a lot of massage therapists in our sample, but we're also picking up on nurses. So we're getting more and more nurses. And just to say that Smitty and I had a small competition between who can get more. So right now I'm winning. I get, well, no, who can get more of whichever profession. So I get to win right now since I'm bringing in the massage therapist. So we'll see if he can pick up the pace and get closer so that maybe he can win a little bit. You never know. So (laughs) she has a little over 200 massage therapists and I've got right at about 150 nurses. Um, participating in the study and though okay well we need to step this up a little bit <laughs> right uh and but that makes up the majority more than almost two-thirds of our of our whole sample um it becomes one of the really interesting things about this conglomeration of people is that there there are aspects of massage that we're taught in nursing school we're taught about using fluoride we're taught about using some of these techniques for our patients not in the same depth we're, we're taught about acupressure. Some of us as nurses will go and get a little bit more, but there's also a lot of massage therapists that will cross-train. Um, and so you'll have massage therapists that either also are nurses or nurses that become massage therapists with both ways. But Ann Blair has been um, educating me over the last couple of months about how many massage therapists are also nursing technicians. Um, and, and so there, there's already this synergy between the professions. It, it's about intimacy, it's about care, it's about touch. It's about enabling that person's body to heal itself, as opposed to conventional medicine allopathy, where you, you know, you're you're curing the body from the outside. There, there's there is something that connects our professions, and yet we we don't know much about the crossover between everything that we do. We we don't know how shared our experiences are. And one of my hypotheses is that we're going to see a lot of very similar themes coming up between nurses and massage therapists. That's that's very interesting. We're already seeing from um, our our video blog participants are overwhelmingly massage therapists. 
We have about a hundred of those. Um, and we're, I, I should be letting Ann Blair talk about this, but I've gotten excited about it now. We're seeing people talk about um, the separation between, from the, like they, they're not with their patients. We actually have had a number of individuals even write us an email talking about how painful it is to know that their patients need them, but it's just not safe. To, to take care of them. And at the same time, we're seeing from our nursing colleagues, from social media posts and from the survey, if we have a handful of video blog participants that are nurses, but not as many, we're seeing that same theme of I'm I am separate from my patient. I can't, I can't hold their hand. It, it, it's the same drive is pushing both of us forward and it's causing this tension in different ways because the nurses are locked in a hospital wrapped up in plastic not able to to spend time with their patients and the massage therapists are locked out of their offices, not able to help the patients, not being told they're not allowed to come and help the nurses either. And I think we'll find, I'm really excited about the things that we're gonna find that are shared experiences between nurses and massage therapists. And we have some that are also dual. I mean, I know of at least two or three in our sample that are both nurses and massage therapists, and they're talking about that difference between, they're just like he described, that they're not able to see their clients as a massage therapist, that they still have a part-time practice, which they've had to close, but they're in the hospital system working shift after shift after shift. And one of them, I know one just graduated and so yeah, I was a massage therapist before I became a nurse. So I'm in that cohort. And I know many nurses who've become massage therapists in the course of their careers. Whether it's a side hustle or, or, or a new career, they do that. So when we say Project COPE, it's chronicling healthcare providers' pandemic experiences. So we bring the O out of providers to get the O in COPE. So when we say healthcare providers, Someone listening might say, well, I don't provide care, but I'm the director of nursing of an assisted living facility, or I'm the chief nursing officer of a hospital system, but I don't actually see patients right now. I'm not a clinician. Am I still eligible to be a respondent to this survey? Absolutely. Yeah? Okay, so when we say healthcare providers, this is a very large tent you've created, right? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Are you hearing from or being, are you able to reach any licensed practical nurses or nurses' aides? I have not. Or nursing assistants? I think we have some. I ha you have the data open, it looks like. This doesn't have a breakdown. I think we have a few nurses' aides. I don't remember if we have a licensed practical nurse. Okay. That's good. Okay, so you're going, you're getting a little, a little taste of some of these other providers who we often don't think about, like nurses' aides, or I'm thinking even home health aides who work for even mom and pop home health agencies, not like big national home health agency chains, but very small organizations. So. Healthcare provider is a pretty big term, and it sounds like you're welcoming all comers at this point. We're even bringing in like personal trainers and other athletic trainers mm -hmm. as well, because they're impacted by this. And also the students who are studying these things, because oh, they're all shifted and pulled out of the, their environment. And so we're really trying to get 
this very broad understanding of how it's impacting so many different lives and education of those. I see. And part of that comes from our, our experiences. I mean, it, you know, Ann Blair came from a theater background, moved into massage therapy, and now teaches as faculty at a medical um, I was a nursing assistant for years, got my license practical nursing degree, then got my associates, then my bachelor's. You know, worked my way all the way through, did the managed the memory care unit. We have seen really different pieces of the healthcare system. We're both in positions now where we're trying to mentor the next generations. Um, I, I do a little bit of guest lecturing in some of the undergraduate programs, um, and Ann Blair has a huge following of mentees at the med school but trying to help people early in their career see just how much goes into healthcare because it isn't just the doctor writing a prescription there are all these other hands that actually make it happen i see you have to look at the whole picture right so you all said that this is longitudinal mixed methods ethnography so when we say longitudinal do you have any end date in sight, or is this just until the pandemic is actually completely over? When we started, we thought we were going to be collecting data for a couple months. You know, a lot of us thought this would be for a couple months. Okay. But now, as I mean, there's still so much unknown. We don't see any way that we could actually close the survey until we're actually on top of the pandemic. As long as people are willing to respond, we're going to continue to collect information. Mm-hmm. Um, because if nothing else, these these people's stories need to be told, um, and that's that's the service that we can provide to our profession to to help make sure those stories are make it out and preserved, and that in the future people understand how hard all of us have been working. Yeah, and I'm thinking when you say stories, you know, first we think of a longitudinal research. Study that is going to collect data. So you're going to have lots of data points, right? You're going to be crunching numbers, doing the math, like Ann Blair said at the top of the show. Then we have the stories, and you mentioned video blogs a bunch of times. And I'm immediately started to flash on StoryCorps, which are these booths set up all over the country periodically to collect audio stories. And I've heard many of them. They're very moving. And I believe some are cataloged in the Library of Congress, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm picturing this almost like a StoryCorps project, qualitative project, where we're going to be able to have this this archive of people's actually lived experience. And Ann Blair, what are you seeing in the video blogs so far? What are people talking about? And is it emotional? Is it more like just this is what happened at work? What are you hearing and seeing? So it's been so interesting. So with this, we we're, the survey software we're using, people are able to simply use their phones and they can capture just themselves talking, and they don't have to show their face if they don't want to. And then it can simply upload directly into our system, so we're able to keep it there, which has been fantastic. And I remember watching just even the first four that we got. And the first four, two were nurses and two were massage therapists, which is so interesting. And they were so vastly different. The massage therapists were saying, 
you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. I'm having to file for unemployment. I've never had to do this before. I've had to close my practice and I, I don't know what's really going to happen. And the nurses, the two in the beginning looked beaten. They looked so exhausted and they were even mentioning, I'm already burned out, but I can't not go. I have to go. I have to go. And it was just this vast difference of just looking at their faces was so profound to me to see that difference in nonverbal communication was striking. And so that's been this piece as well to be able to, even though they don't have to show their faces when they do. And that's one of the reasons why we chose to go with a video journal op option and also to see how people progress over time. Now that we've progressed through this for several months, we've seen this kind of, you know, uncertainty in the beginning and not knowing what to do and really stress about finances to also wondering what's going to happen when I go back to work. Is, am I going to take something to these individuals? Are they going to give something to me? Can I keep my place safe from this virus? Am I able to follow these protocols to keep sanitation? Because this isn't necessarily what we're trained in to this extent as massage therapists. It's just not part of our training. No, it's not. So how do we still do what we do in this brand new environment? And I don't think a lot of, a lot of them mm. know the answer yet. And Smitty, some of the videos you've watched, have you had similar reactions to Anne Blair as you watch the video blogs and kind of take in the zeitgeist of what is coming to you from the respondents to the survey? Uh, I, I, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Anne Blair really hit it on the head. Um, there, there's and as we've progressed, we've seen more and more um, the, the dread coming into the massage therapist and more hard nurses just looking exhausted. You know, we both work on a large uh, hospital campus as well. And it's, it, it's uh, sometimes I'll have to be very careful about what days I, I watch the videos because it's a, it can be hard to walk across campus and look at look at the faces of all the other healthcare providers and not continue to react emotionally um, because there are there's so much just rawness that, that people just there's so many things we don't know there's so many things we don't understand so many things we can't control and that all of that pours is pouring out of these these video blogs um, and it's it's an overwhelming experience um, to try to sit there and watch more than just pain. They're powerful, powerful stories. I'm, I'm sure. And, and so Smitty, it sounds like it's having a personal effect on you as one of the researchers because you're also a healthcare provider. So there's you're having your own experience as the researcher, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, sure, I can. Um, and it's, Something I've, I've noticed in my own journaling about this is, is, is struggling with, with several layers of it. You know, I, I've stepped away from the bedside and I feel this really strong urge to put down my research and go back and help. At the same time, I'm the one managing uh, the, our COVID registry for our hospital, feeding data into several larger um, registries, supporting all the research, um, tracking PPE burn rates. 
uh, you know, I know there's things that I'm actively doing, but I still feel very conflicted to to see hear talk to my friends who are in the ICU or in the ER, still in these patients, but I'm not there with them. And I feel like I should be. I feel very strongly that I should be. But at the same time, my my sister-in-law just had a baby, you know, and uh, my niece is coming to stay with us because the baby's born premature, and so there's all these extra family concerns. Like, do I really want to go? back into the into the um back to work when i could be bringing this home to my family um and then the guilt about well why why is my family so much more special than anyone else's but there's layers and washing emotions that everyone has to be feeling on some level like this is these aren't unique experiences but to see it so plainly displayed on other healthcare providers faces um it 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 starts something in you it 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 makes it harder to ever think about not sharing these stories about not about you know when we think about stopping when we stop it's really hard to even fathom that we would because there's so much that needs to be understood so much needs to be well thanks for sharing you know from that personal perspective and congratulations on a new baby in your family that's exciting and lots of babies being born during this pandemic and i just can't even imagine the parents experience i just can't I can't even fathom what that is, what that's like at this juncture. One of our co-investigators is pregnant. I see. Okay. So she is in the midst of that too. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. Ann Blair, as a clinical professor of medicine and a massage therapist, and obviously you have friends and colleagues in both worlds, this must be having a personal impact on you as well. Very much so. Um, So watching most of my colleagues have not gone back to work, but some of them have. Also watching how the different professional associations from the massage therapy world are are handling it. But one of the things that has impacted me really the most was at relatively near the beginning, when the students were pulled out of the, the clinical environment, I was asked to offer this. I teach a, um, an elective for the fourth year students on gender and sexuality in a clinical environment. And I was asked to mm. convert it to an online so we could get some education to our, to our medical students who've been pulled out of the environment. And we were near the end of our two weeks. And I don't even remember what day we were on, but usually it's like, we sit there and we talk for two hours about the stuff that they were supposed to prepare. And they all just got quiet. And this is about 10 students. And I just had to stop. I'm like, okay, y'all, all of you, all of you are looking a little bit rough today. What is it? And then they just let it spill out. And so for the second hour of class, I got to hear all the fear and worry and angst of these amazing rising fourth year, fourth year medical students of everything that is going on. And also in this time, we're having these town halls with all of our students in the fourth years who hadn't graduated yet because it's just prior to graduation. Mm -hmm. They wanted to graduate early and go right into the fray. They all wanted to go to New York. And all I can sit there is, so one of my students calls me a mama bear. <laughs> and um, I will firmly admit that I keep them very close. And I remember being on this town hall and hearing these students say they want to graduate early. And I just burst into tears. Oh, yeah. Because I don't want them to get into that environment. Mm-hmm. And it was just really hard to see. And there's nothing I can do for that. And it's just been very powerful to have all of these people want to go into these environments and help 
anybody who's ill. And that's just been so remarkable to me. Mm. And we need to capture that. Yes, we need to capture it and also feel it at the same time. Obviously, you're feeling exactly. it very deeply. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah, and Smitty, you sharing too. And yeah, that's your, your, it's a very intimate, it can be a very intimate relationship between professor and student when you care so much and then you're watching them. Of course, you want the fledglings to leave the nest, but you don't want them leaving the nest going straight into a forest fire. I mean, that's no. really the <laughs> metaphor here, right? Yes. You, you yes. don't want to see them get burned right out of medical school. And exactly. of course, so many students' uh, clinical experiences and educational experiences have been hobbled in some way or stymied and what do we do with all these folks? How do we get them the education they need? How do we keep them safe? And I have friends who are clinical professors of nursing and they're all trying to figure out what they're going to do. And we can't do all, you know, video-based clinical learning because it's not quite the same as touching a real human body, but we also don't want them risking their lives. So, oh my gosh. Um, we do have to start to close here, but I want to ask a couple questions. Now, this is, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. And again, thank you all for sharing your personal experiences. I really appreciate that, that glimpse into the, the, the back end of the, the research, so to speak. Uh, you know, the people doing the research, how it's impacting you. I think we hear about results of research, but rarely do we talk about the actual researchers. So I think that's that's a wonderful aspect of this too. But Smitty, I I know that you serve as the executive director of the Center of Excellence in LGBTQ Health and Wellness and the director of the Prisma Health Comprehensive COVID-19 Registry. So you spoke about the registry, and this is where you feed your COVID data into larger databases, right? And it goes mm -hmm. to eventually, I guess, the federal government or whatever. And we won't get into the fact that you're all supposed to send the information to the feds rather than the CDC, and that could be an entire conversation. Just we can register our our hump over that and our our <laughs> not being not being very happy about some of the stuff that's going on with this data. However, in terms of LGBTQ health and wellness, tell us a little about a little bit about the center of excellence in LGBTQ health and wellness. What's what's that about and what's the mission? Well, that's this is actually how Ambler and I met. Um, for a number oh. of years, um, I have chaired the LGBT Alliance, which is a uh, business resource group for the hospital looking at the needs of patients and uh, team members and identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, Ambler actually came to one of, the, one of the committee meetings. I made a mention about evaluation science, which is um, the type of researchers that we are, and we started bonding very quickly. Um, but we, Amblair has been very active in a parallel group at the School of Medicine. And last, last year, we made a decision with um, a third person that's been part of that group, reproductive endocrinologist, that we, we needed to have a, a centralized approach to creating cultural change. We have some pretty significant um, healthcare disparities in the LGBTQ community. We have um, not only increased rates of obesity and smoking and substance use, increased risk of uh, depression. Um, and a lot of it 
stems, or we believe a lot of it stems from just not having an affirming place of free care. We also see those same patterns play out in the medical students, in uh, nurses throughout uh, the system. There's actually um, a young, one of, one of Ambler's medical students is really giving some poignant thoughts around what it, what it is to be a LGBTQ medical student, um, what it is to try, try to get into this profession. And there are all these barriers, there are all these issues that are coming up. And really the core cause of so many of them is that people have to pretend to be someone else. Or if they don't, they might get, they might face stigma. And they internalize that and cause all kinds of cascading mm -hmm. issues. And so the work we're doing is to try to um, not only provide education throughout the system, but try to affect meaningful change. One thing that we did uh, a couple years ago was include uh, gender identity and sexual orientation in our electronic health record. We captured patient's pronouns and we put it as a patient header um, so that when a provider opens the chart, they know how to address the patient rather than the patient having to explain it every time. We worked to adjust language. We had some legal documents that were dated and they were around paternity and uh, fertility treatments. And it was very much, it was husband and wife. It wasn't even male and female. It was, it was even based on that had to be happening inside of a, a traditional marriage. There are all these echoing things that we can start to address. And so we're trying to form the center of excellence to, or we're forming the center of excellence to address the intersectional issues that are affecting minorities, and many of which intersect through the LGBTQ community. Wow, that's fantastic. And I'm so glad we've begun talking about this because I'm going to be having you all back later in 2020 so that we can dig deep into the LGBTQ health and wellness issues facing the entire community and go as deep as we can into that so that listeners audience members can really understand the challenges there for healthcare providers who do identify with those communities and also for patients and providers who also just want to be sensitive to these issues and understand how to address people and how to address their particular health needs. So we'll be circling back for an entire hour of this conversation pretty soon, just in a few months. So thank you for giving us a little teaser of what we'll be talking about. I look forward to it. Yeah. So as we say goodbye, where do people go to take this survey and become a respondent, a participant in this research, and Blair? So we have, um, we're, we're on most of the social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit, and LinkedIn, uh, where you would search um, Project COPE chronicling healthcare providers' pandemic experiences. You're really probably going to, you might need to put in that full part, the chronicling healthcare providers' pandemic experiences, because there are a couple other project codes out there mm -hmm. um, that, you, that you might come across. You can also simply Google that as well, and you would get to our website, which would also give you a link directly into joining the project. Great. And this will all be in the show notes, of course, at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-15. I'm going to try to connect you all with some other medical and nursing podcasts that could get the word out as soon as this episode comes out. So, oh, Ambler Kennedy and 
Smith, Hebner, Sullivan, it's been such a pleasure. Y'all are wonderful. I can't wait to have you back to dig into these other topics. And I'm going to take the survey myself because I'm a healthcare provider, even though I'm not a clinician at this particular time, but I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and, and respond to the survey and get it out to my friends and colleagues. So thank you all so, so much for this great work. And do you all have one word or, or a couple words, just very brief, for anyone who's on the fence about taking part in the survey? And Blair, one sentence. Your stories are valid and important. Please share them. Great. And Snitty? We want to hear you. Great. So, so the stories are important. So we need the data, but we also want the qualitative stories. It's so important for us to understand people's experiences. So thank you all so much. Y'all are amazing. And I can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. There'll be many more to come. And remember the show notes to learn all about Project COPE and Ann Blair and Smitty will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-15. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your wider communities. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities seeking to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check us out at arslonga.media, that is A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. You can find on the Health Podcast Network, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the New England Journal of Medicine, the AMA, the Mayo Clinic, UPenn Nursing's Amplify Nursing, and many other wonderful podcasts. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19 pandemic and takes the Project COPE survey and participates in the research. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Smith Hebner Sullivan bidding you adieu from Greenville, South Carolina. And Anne Blair saying goodbye from Greenville, South Carolina. Great. Dr. Anne Blair Kennedy, thank you both coming to us from Greenville and we will catch everybody on the flip side. Mm-hmm.